Each man then took his post at their retire. So then these numerous hosts began to fire. The cannon on each side did roar like thunder, and youths in all their pride were torn asunder. Hello! Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at the next little chunk of Montcalm and Wolf by Francis Parkman Jr., the final book in his series on French Canada and its fall. Um, this whole book deals mostly with the Seven Years' War in North America, the French and Indian War, as it's called. And it, it, the climax of it is in the title, Montcalm and Wolf, the two titanic generals who, who fought for final dominance of, of the American continent in, in the 1750s. So anyways, uh, this part of the book deals with the initial fighting that began in North America. It actually began, fighting began between the French and British in North America prior to the formal start of the Seven Years' War in, in, in Europe. Uh, the war starts maybe 1757 or something. Fighting began in 1754. Um, in North America. So in some ways, they're, they're sort of different wars with different origins and different, uh, that got, you know, the American war sort of got subsumed by this larger global conflict. Um, but also, I, I'd say that while that war dragged on until 1763 in the Treaty of Paris, the French and Indian War more or less ended by, with the fall of Quebec in 1760. So anyways, I'm going to look at the, the initial fighting, the, the, some of the early English defeats, the campaign of Braddock, uh, the, the skirmishes that Washington was a part of first on. You know, we'll just kind of see what Parkman says about those things. But I wanted to think about, uh, you know, Parkman's historical context a little bit. You know, he was writing from the 1840s to the, to the 1880s, really until early eight, 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 right before he died. So the final book of the series in terms of publication, A Half Century Conflict, wasn't published until 1892. So for 50 years or so, he was writing about Indians, about empires, about the West, starting with his book, The Oregon Trail, which was a personal memoir. Uh, then we got Pontiac's uh, Revolt. And then we have this series of books about French Canada. And he's writing, of course, at a time when the U.S., I mean, over the course of his career, the trans-Mississippi West went from being pretty much a frontier dominated by different Indian groups. You did have a U.S. presence there. You had some military presence there, some forts. You had the Oregon Trail. But largely, those places were, it was an unconquered part. It was an empire on paper alone. But within 50 years, of course, that changed entirely. And the entire continent was was subdued by the United States. Uh, we see the entrance of capital, the railroads, the large mining companies, the large ranchers replacing the cowboys. And, you know, a lot of people who study the history of the West nowadays, you know, they look at this kind of tension between the mythology of the West, you know, the Wild West, this idea of an untamed wilderness with this, these independent frontiersmen, you know, with, with, with irons, you know, where law, the law is only ad hoc. Um, the, the only women are bar owners and, and, and prostitutes in, in 
bars and mining frontiers and things like that. that that's kind of that, that mythology of the West. And of course, the iconic figure there is the cowboy, right? And by 1900, you know, the cowboys were largely not gone entirely, but largely subdued by the large ranching interests, right? The independent gold miner were being replaced by the corporate miners. If you haven't seen this show Deadwood yet, you know, it's good for all sorts of reasons. But one story I think it tells pretty well is in kind of a condensed form is the arrival of the large mining concerns and how they basically take over the politics, the economy from the, the independent miners. And that story was told again and again, even with farming, right? The large bonanza farms replacing small family farms. Um, the Homestead Act be becoming, in practice, a, a huge land grab by the railroads. Uh, these stories are, are fairly well known, and they're taking place during Parkman's life. Now, why is this relevant um, for our reading of Francis Parkman? Well, I think one reason could be that these are some of the themes he latches on to. He, when he talks about like French Canada, He's really interested in this tension between like the Cour de Bois, the true frontiers people, the, 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 the French Indian, as he often, he often uses that term. It's in sources too, but he often uses this term, the French Indian, the, the, like the, the fur traders, the, the people living out in the West who have this kind of spirit of liberty, he thinks kind of stretches across the, the British colonies. And I've talked several times in this series about how I think he really overstates liberty. He's kind of bought into this rhetoric about American liberties or British liberties as, as a geopolitical advantage. Um, and I don't know if that's really why the victory happened. I don't totally buy that argument. I, I do see the evidence of, of the downside of hierarchy and autocracy, but to, to call the British North American colonies like a bastion of liberty, I think is a stretch. And even he admits it from time to time, even calling the, 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 the Puritans theocracies and he finally gets a little bit to slavery in this volume as well. But that aside, I, I do think he's he's concerned with the fate of of the independent frontiersmen. If you remember from the Oregon Trail, that book, he was most interested in these true frontiers people, these people who who made their living on the frontier, um, you know, but with interacting closely with Indians, these traders, these first generation residents of, of this frontier who, you know, are really of a different type that would then would come later, you know, contrasting to like the families who came on the Oregon Trail, the farmers, or ultimately the state and corporate interests. Now, obviously with, you know, actually you do have this with the, in the French Canadian case as well, although he focuses on autocracy and the domination of the, of, of absolutism, French absolutism, and how that kind of corrupted the the institutions of New France and made it difficult for them to adapt, made them easily to fall into that those same patterns of corruption, um, and made it difficult for governors to act independently to improve their position. That's true, but he also does talk about like the strong uh, kind of financial interests of the fur trade monopolies and how they were in battle with some of the Cordobois forces. So he's got in his mind this emerge like institutional domination of a frontier versus a more democratic um, control of the frontier. Now, had he kind of respected the Indians a little bit more, not that he doesn't respect them at all, he just falls into the same kind of stereotypes and a little bit of prejudice about, about Native American people. 
he's been criticized for 100 years about this stuff. So I don't want to go too much into it. Um, but, you know, he does seem to have some respect for these different Indian polities. But had he kind of focused on them more, he might even have a more complex and interesting story about the about the contested nature of, of the frontier, one that's getting slowly gobbled up by monarchy, by corporate monopoly and and various other top-down power moneyed interests. Um, so I do think we can kind of find some parallels between Parkman's own situation as a as a writer, someone witnessing the end of the frontier, right? He he pretty much finishes his life's work around the same time that Frederick Jackson Turner writes his frontier thesis, which of course is an argument that kind of the frontiers where American democracy was was made and reborn generation to generation. And with the end of that, there's an open question about what the future of American democracy would be. That's Turner. Uh, I don't think he ever read Turner. He may have died before that essay was ever written. But, you know, it's he's living at a time when the frontier in continental America is, quote unquote, closing. And to some degree, I think there, there has to be parallels between that story and the story he tells here about New France. All historians, of course, have their own historical context. So with that out of the way, let's let's jump into the, the text for today. Um, it's going to be just chapters five, six, seven and eight of the of the book. Um, and basically, yeah, two. Well, one is about Washington and the Battle of Fort Necessity and Washington's kind of first military campaign. Now, of course, Washington was a very, very important figure in the colonial forces in the in the Seven Years' War. He fought in several places and, and Parkman makes sure to mention and he mentions other kind of classic American founders like Franklin. His story kind of enters into it at various times. He has a whole section on Pennsylvania politics, which I think is in a future episode, but it's good stuff. Um, but of course, Fort Necessity is kind of where he started, and it was a defeat, right? I think didn't Washington lose most of his battles in the French and Indian War, captured at one point. But we'll have that. Um, then we have a chapter called "The Signal of Battle," which uh, kind of deals with how these different governments began to really mobilize for this battle that's breaking out in the in the frontier, because that's where it begins. This Ohio Valley frontier, this western frontier, this contested territory in the Trans-Appalachian West, where it wasn't really clear who was clearly had claims, who could defend those claims, who could control them. The French kind of on paper had a lot of this territory, but you had settlers and squatters moving in and a lot more, it became much more of a contact zone, much more of a conflict zone. Um, so the next chapter deals with kind of the beginning of the fighting um, in 1754, 1755, and how the different governments responded to that. Then we have the tragic expedition of Braddock um, and then that's chapter seven and chapter eight is the removal of the Acadians which tells a fairly long story going from 1755 to 1763 so those overlaps with other stories but over the course of the seven years war most of the French Acadians were were encouraged or forced to leave Acadia and many of them went off to to Louisiana or, or other places so um, yeah that's that's basically the tale here. So, I mean, if you look at the broad history of the Seven Years' War, basically you have from 1754 to 1758, a series of French victories, some of them quite massive and devastating, like the fall of Oswego, um, 
the battle at uh, Fort William Henry, 1757. And then in 1758, you have the fall of Lewisburg, the second time, the second siege of Lewisburg. Uh, it was previously sieged, besieged and taken in, uh, in King George's War, but returned to France. It falls in 1758, and that kind of opens up the floodgates and, op- and creates the geopolitical strategic co- potential for a British invasion of New France, which took another two years until the fall of Quebec in 1760. So there's kind of the, like the French, like French victorious phase and then the, the, the phase in which the British fairly systematically conquer um, New France. So that's how we start here. So in chapter five, we start with the first the first battles, and that is a chapter just called Washington. So as we saw in the last episode, there was increased uh, French activity in this Ohio Valley area. And and this brings a response by the British colonials. And so in, in March 1754, uh, the, the, I guess the governor of Virginia sends Washington um, with, with some militia and some troops to basically maybe build some forts and stop the creation of French bases. I mean, the orders were act on the defensive, but in case any attempts are made to obstruct the works or interrupt our settlements by any persons whatsoever, you're to restrain such offenders. And in case of resistance, to make prisoners of or to destroy them. So this basically gives Washington a free hand to to start a war if you if if you if he wanted to if he had the chance to do that, and so he goes into the frontier with this handful of of men. It's it's a few dozen, I think. Um, do I have the exact numbers here? Yeah, this is from Wikipedia. We have a hundred regulars from South Carolina independent militia, three hundred officers and men from the Virginia regiment, um, and. Most of these people are, are captured or killed in the course of the, the Battle of Fort uh, Necessity. Um, but anyways, he, he eventually builds this, builds this fort in the, in the frontier. Now, it wasn't much of a fort. It was just uh, some crude palisades that were, were put up, wood palisades. And the location is uh, it's, um, in present-day Wharton Township, Pennsylvania. So it's in, it's in western Pennsylvania, right, kind of in the borderlands uh, between Pennsylvania uh, Maryland and, and nowadays West Virginia. So it was, it was way out there in kind of in the mountains. So the French eventually attacked this fort in, on July 3rd, 1754. Um, after the battle, um, negotiations for surrender begin and Washington signs the surrender document and the, a few survivors were able to um, march back to to Virginia, and that's kind of how the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War in America um, begins. So this chapter, not that much interesting outside of the history of it. It's, I guess it's relevant because it's our first mention of, of George Washington here, um, who, of course, is not only an important figure in this war, but uh, the, war Revolu- the Revolutionary War as well. So, but anyways, if, if you're a Washington fan, it might be worthwhile to pay attention to uh, his account um, of, of this, of Fort Necessity, the rise, the, the, the establishment, and then the fall of Fort Necessity. Um, by the way, the, 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 the French commander here was um, a man named Villiers. He was the, um, the one who destroyed this. And this basically ended, it was the last kind of British flag, the last, there were the, 
it, it put an end to attempts of the, the English to kind of establish bases there. And it's going to open up this frontier zone to French dominance. So a lot of the fighting in the French and Indian War will take place here, but it's not going to be to the British advantage. And we're going to see that with uh, the Braddock expedition as well, which was like a second kind of a follow up battle to this that ended even more catastrophically for the for the British. So anyways, an OK chapter that gets into this this history. But as with much of this book, it's a lot of narrative. It's a lot about negotiations, a lot about the condition of the troops, um, the back and forth letters between commanders and things like that. So, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, read it. Um, Anyways, chapter six is called The Signal of Battle. It was uh, covers 1754 and 1755, which is basically the realization on both sides, both French and the British in North America, that this is going to be another war is broken out. And a lot of it's about how both sides begin to prepare for the conflict. So kind of on the forefront here is, is Governor DeWittle, DeWitty, DeWitty. Uh, he was the governor of, of Virginia at the time. He's the one who sent Washington out to the frontier. Um, and he's, he needs money, he needs resources, he needs help from, from London. Uh, this is what Parkman writes about it. Uh, he rested his hopes on the secession of his assembly, which was to take place in August, for he thought that the late disaster would move them to give him money for defending the colony. These meetings of the Burgesses were the great social as well as political event of the Old Dominion and gave a gathering signal to the Virginia gentry scattered far and wide on their lonely plantations. The capital was the province of Williamsburg, a village of about a thousand inhabitants traversed by a straight and very wide street and adorned with various public buildings. Conspicuous among them was William and Mary College, a respectable structure unjustly likened by Jefferson to a brick kiln with a roof. The capital at the other end of the town had been burned some years before. Not far distance was the so-called governor's palace where Dinwiddie and his wife and two daughters exercised such official hospitality as his moderate salary and Scottish thrift would permit. In these seasons of festivity, a dull and quiet village was transfigured. The broad sandy street scorching under the southern sun was thronged with coaches and chariots brought over from London at heavy cost in tobacco, though soon to be bemidden by Virginia roads and Negro care, racing and hard-drinking planters, clergymen of the establishment, not much more aesthetic than their boon companions of the laity, ladies with manners a little rusted by long seclusion, black coachmen and footmen, you know, there's more on this, but it's a really nice description of just how this capital, it became a wartime capital. And in this time of emergency, it, it kind of exploded into a, a thriving center of, of business and activity as the Virginians tried to work out how are they going to defend this country from the French who, by this point, totally dominated the, the, the frontier. Now, a, a big problem they had was the lack of really colonial unity. So this is where we get like the Albany plan, uh, the, attempt to, the attempt to create a kind of a unified foreign policy for the colonies. Um, and again, this is kind of back to your U.S. History 101 stuff. But uh, in 1754, there was this attempt to create some kind of council. It was, it was called the Congress at Albany, which was going to bring together these different colonial governments for some sort of unified action. And, and funding and things like that. Now, the main idea here with this, with this failed conference it, it, that took place in the summer of 1754 was to create like a common foreign policy for the Indians, right? Because, I mean, that was like one of the, some of the biggest weaknesses that the British in North America had vis-a-vis -vis the French was the lack of Indian allies. I think they eventually got the Iroquois to support them and a few others, but largely the vast majority of the Indian 
tribes, the Algonquin groups, sided with the with the with the French in this war. So uh, this this effort's described in this chapter as as well. Of course, Ben Franklin was a was a key figure in the in the meeting. Um, actually, the Wikipedia here has the different representatives. So yeah, who came from Virginia? Virginia's Virginia didn't send a delegate. Well, um, anyways, you can check out the the article for that. The history of the of the of the Albany plan. Uh, Parkman also details what's going on in Parliament in in London, and basically his thesis is that the leadership in London was not really set up for this. Obviously, when you compare this to William Pitt, who goes all in on this war, as is provides the financial and political resources needed to to once and for all kind of conquer New France. Uh, I mean, who do you have here? So the Secretary of State was the first Duke of Newcastle. His brother was Prime Minister Henry Pelham at the time. And they, I think there was a turnover of government in 1754. Oh yeah, after Appellum, it, it is his brother, the Duke of Newcastle, becomes the, the next prime minister. And eventually William Pitt will become the, the, the prime minister who will provide out those resources. Now, as for France, uh, we get um, something, we, we get Parkman's image of the French government at this time is... Essentially, absolutism has been victorious. You know, whatever Louis XIV failed at, he succeeded in creating this absolutism, uh, both in the empire and at home. But the downside of this, of course, was it was prone to poor government. If you get a bad leader or an ineffectual leader, you're going to end up with uh, incompetent government. And that's, that's his point here. And he says, for instance, in France, the true leader was Madame de Pompadour, once the king's mistress, now his procurus and a sort of feminine prime minister. Um, you know, when I hear this stuff, it always bothers me. I, I've recently been thinking a lot about uh, Sushi, the, you know, a woman who ruled China for like 40 years or so in the later half of the 19th century into the early 20th century. And she's just been looked at by Chinese hist historians and, and most Western historians who looked at this too as sort of a bad person, like someone who was totally incompetent and incapable. And, you know, the the fact of the matter is with Sushi, she ruled one of the you know the biggest empire in the world for a fair number of years, and you know uh, through some very intense crises. You got the Taiping Rebellion, the Boxer Rebellion, foreign invasions, wars with Japan, you know efforts to modernize all these things. And yeah, she may have been politically conservative, and she propped up conservatives, and there there are things we can point to as as faults of her governance. But just the vitriol against her, it wouldn't be there if it was a man, I think, right? And, you know, that's kind of an example from Chinese history. But whenever you have strong women ruling behind the scenes, using their powers, working within political systems created by men, uh, when they're able to do that in a way, historians often look at them kind of, you know, in these negative broad brushes. And certainly Parkman does that here with uh, Madame de Pompadour. Now, I don't know that much about her. Maybe everything he says here is right. But, you know, 
the fact that she was able to accumulate so much power for herself is just from a feminist point of view, a very interesting question and something that shouldn't be um, kind of ignored just so we can kind of say, oh, this we can we can blame all these faults on this, this this powerful woman. I mean, that's the problem with it. Right. Blaming the faults, the a decline of an empire, blaming a you know political decline or, or decadence on on women when the same type of language is never used when it's it's men fully in charge. Right. Like, would anything be different if Madame de Pompadour was not in the court and not exercising such power? I don't know. So this is acknowledged a little bit in the Wikipedia article on, on her, uh, quote, hostile critics at the time generally tarred her as a malevolent political influence, but historians are more favorable, emphasizing her successes as a patroness of the arts and a champion of French pride. Art historian Melissa Hyde argues that the critiques of Pompadour were driven by fears of the overturning of class and gender hierarchies that Pompadour's power and influence as a woman who was not born of the aristocracy represented. So I agree. That's, I mean, that's my gut for someone who's never read a book about her thought much about her that's my gut feeling is it's basically sexism that that leads to these negative portrayals but there's a lot of uh images of her in various uh film and television a lot of different adaptations this would be interesting to study how she's been predict uh, portrayed in popular culture so anyways, that's my thoughts about the Pompadour stuff. I, I'm not so easy just to, to blame it all on her and, and not everything else wrong with, with absolutism. But anyways, this is a good chapter in the book, an important one at talking about this, the how both governments were preparing for war, the challenges they faced, whether it was absolutism on the one hand or colonial disunity on the, the other but neither seemed to have very compelling leadership at the time. Um, the book, after all, is called Montcalm and Wolfe. Uh, who are those strong leaders who emerge? Both military leaders, right? But even at the higher levels, you have fairly capable leadership emerging on both sides, especially the British with, with William Pitt. So the next chapter, chapter seven, is called Braddock, 1755. And this is uh, the history that Parkman writes of the Braddock um, campaign. I think I mentioned this just briefly in the where he talks. He talks about this campaign in Parkman. I mean, talks about this campaign in the book on Pontiac's revolt because that that book begins with kind of a review of the Seven Years' War. So this campaign took place in 1755. Um, it's the summer of 1755. Now Braddock he brought about two thousand, yeah, about two thousand British troops, um, basically to reestablish a British position in the in the western frontier um, it, the battle where it the battle where uh, Braddock was eventually defeated was in was in like western Pennsylvania uh, the battle of Mongra Gala um, and you know this was a really devastating campaign we get the whole history here um, and I'll park this normal detail but uh you know, the British lost like a thousand men, about half of this expedition was lost, you know, killed or wounded. And the, the French only lost less than 100, 100 soldiers in the in the battle. So a devastating defeat by um, for the for the British. And again, it kind of opened up this frontier to um, being dominated by the French and the Indians in the, in the conflict. Now we get some good prose here. It's a fairly well written chapter, I think. Uh, 
I, you know, just showing like the horror and the, uh, the, 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 the terror of the fighting, right? Um, quote, it was about that time that the mob of soldiers, having been three hours under fire and having spent their ammunitions, awoke in a blind frenzy, rushed back towards the fours. And when, says Washington, we endeavored to rally them with as much success as if we attempted to stop the wild bears of the mountains. They dashed across helter-skelter, plunging through the water to the farther bank, leaving wounded comrades, cannon, baggage, and military chest, and the general's papers, a prey to the Indians. About 50 of these followed to the edge of the river. Dumas and Langrenier, who had now only about 20 Frenchmen with them, made no attempts to pursue and went back to the fort because, says Contrecor, so many of the Canadians had retired at the first fire. The field, abandoned to the savages, was a pandemonium of pillage and murder. Um, Braddock's, of course, killed in the... Well, he's, he's wounded and he dies. Some, like a, he holds on for like a week or two. Um, anyways, as he concludes this chapter, Parkman, he says, Thus the frontier was left unguarded, and soon as Dwinwitty had foreseen, there burst upon it a storm of blood and fire. Um, so it, this doesn't end the fighting in this kind of Ohio, Ohio Valley theater, but this, it seems that the fighting here was mostly one-sided. Um, and really where the decisive battles would have to take place would be farther north, and in the in Quebec, in Acadia, and places like that. Then we get chapter eight, uh, the removal of the Acadians, seventeen fifty-five to seventeen sixty-three, and that you know Parkman talked about the Acadians earlier in this book, and he talked about them a lot in the Half Century of Conflict book. So, you know, everyone's probably a bit bored of the Acadians situation by this point, but this is actually maybe the most important chapter on Acadia because it really is about the ultimate decision to to remove the Acadians from the French the French from Acadia you know when the efforts to kind of assimilate them or to make them take loyalty oaths broke down especially in the context of a war now of course I've said more than enough about the 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 problems of, of Acadia the peace of Utrecht left Acadia divided between the British and the French uh, areas that were conquered by the British and the King George's War returned to France. And you had this large population of French speakers who, uh, and Catholics who had dubious loyalty to the French, obviously. And, and the solution to this under the leadership of Cornwallis, not that Cornwallis, but uh, a different one, that the, the strategy there was to um, uh, basically get loyalty oaths to be the way to, to subdue this French pop population. But ultimately it fails. And so this, the decision comes down that they're going to essentially be ethnically cleansed from, from Acadia. And we actually get the document here, the King's Orders, interpreted by the, the local British authorities. Quote, the preemptory orders of his majesty are that all the French inhabitants of this district be removed. And through his majesty's goodness, I am directed to allow you the liberty of carrying with you your money and as many of your household goods as you can take without overloading the vessels you go in. I shall do everything in my power that all these goods be secured to you and that you will not be molested in carrying them away and also that the whole family shall go in the same vessel. So that this removal, which I am sensible must give you a great deal of trouble, may be made as easy as his majesty's service will admit. And I hope that in whatever part of the world your lot may fall, you may be have faithful subjects and a peaceful and happy people. I must also remind you that it is his majesty's pleasure that you remain in security under the inspection and direction of his troops as I have the honor to command. So this letter reminds us that this was a military decision. It was as universal as they could get. It had many of the characteristics of 
a modern day ethnic cleansing, right? If we see the, the strong use of state power, uh, the use of militaries, the, it being done under cover of war, uh, war being a justification for why a particular population must be removed from a territory. We see this again and again in 20th century ethnic cleansings, and we see the same sort of patterns um, in this, um, this event. So I know many historians have, have begun to compare the removal of the Akkadians to these other more modern ethnic cleansings, and I think that's totally apt. I think um, we, it, sh it should be looked at in the same group. Now, they went to a bunch of different places, uh, most famously to Louisiana, but they, but they also went to other places in, 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 the, in British North America. Some went to Canada and other places. But Parkman here, he can't help but find the ultimate blame for this in Paris, um, seeing the Acadians essentially pawns in this war and, and therefore victims not of the British, but of the French. Um, quote, New England humanitarianism melting into sentimentality is a tale at the a tale of woe has been unjust to its own. Whatever judgment may be passed on the cruel measure of wholesale expert ex Patriation, it was not put in execution until every resource of patience and persuasion has been tried in vain. The ages of the French court, civil, military, and ecclesiastical have been made at some force and necessity. We have seen by what vile practices they produced in Acadia, a state of things intolerable and impossible to continuance. They conjured up the tempest, and when it burst on the heads of the unhappy people, they gave no help. The government of Louis XV began with making the Acadians its tools and ended by making them its victims. Well, obviously, here we have a justification of, of a pretty horrendous tyranny uh, in a way that all ethnic cleansings are justified, right, to the degree they're admitted to be taking place at all, right, that it was necessary. We tried everything to get them to peaceably leave first, but ultimately it had to be done because this population was just too dangerous or they're, they're uh, the pawns of a foreign power. You know, you name it. We've, we've heard this before, and, you know, so I'm... I'm I don't think Parkman really does right by the Acadian expulsion in this chapter, but if it's an important thing to, to know about, and it's an important thing to, to read about and study. Um, but for this particular story, you probably want to go to more modern histories. So anyways, that's it. That's going to be it for now. Um, in the third part of my series on Montcalm and Wolf, we'll be looking at... Uh, uh, really, the focus will be on the, the fall of Oswego, one of the, the greatest French victory during the French and Indian War, uh, the arrival of Montcalm um, to, to New France, um, and a few other battles. The Crown Point campaign, fighting in the Hudson Valley, um, and things like that. So, yeah, that's what's coming up in the next episode. So... Um, Hope you'll be here to join me for when we talk about the next kind of stage in the French and Indian War. And uh, I'll try to say some more things about Parkman and his approach and his, his overall historical context. So anyways, thanks for listening. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, but if not, I'll see you next time when I'll talk about the, the third 100-page chunk of... Montcalm and Wolf by Francis Parkman Jr. Their ranks were flying. Brave Wolf then seemed to wake as he lay dying. He lifted up his head. 
while the guns did rattle, and to his army said, How goes the battle? Is a decamp